All right, so just a recap from last week. Um, we're trying to read the Bible like Jesus. Um, we looked at the greatest Bible study ever. We looked at this passage in Luke 24, where Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, explained to these couple disciples all the things concerning himself in the scriptures, um, which is just ex- like, man, I, would, uh, I was reading a book that talked about uh, if I had Marty McFly's little DeLorean time machine, that's the place I'd want to go. Um, is right into that Bible study and just hear Jesus give me the greatest Bible study on earth. And so we talked about that and we introduced a conversation over reading the the Bible the way Jesus did. Uh, But we said in order to do that, we must set some of our agenda, some of our uh, uh, pre, uh, you know, assumptions, our agendas, our uh, perspectives, we must set them aside in order to kind of give us the best clean slate that we can in order to engage the Bible in this way that we're talking about. Um, Then we discussed that this means that we can't just read the Bible as a theology dictionary. We can't read read it as a moral rule book, a devotional grab bag. And these are typical ways that we sometimes engage the Bible, but they are limiting as well. When we engage the Bible in one of those ways, we're missing out on the ways the author's intended us to engage the Bible. And so we kind of wrapped it up with, don't let your experiences define Scripture. Let Scripture define your experiences. That's a quote we kind of used about bringing, you know, not letting our definitions, our assumptions, our ideas take over the stories in Scripture, but let Scripture redefine our definitions, our ideas, and our assumptions. Um, We also talked about uh, a little bit that we have to remove our baggage it's not a cruise ship experience we must go into this leaving our baggage there and entering into a cross-cultural experience and we'll talk more about this kind of stuff as we go um, it's like counterfeit money those people that are trained um, to know what counterfeit money looks like they figure it out by studying the real thing and so we can't get too caught up in, in studying an idea or a prepackaged. You know, one of, the, one of the things I read this week in preparation for later on in this study is sometimes we like to have Bible study microwave style. You know, it's prepackaged, it's pre-ready, we hit 30 seconds and it's done. And, and God will use that sometimes, but we miss out so much when we just try to get to a point when the Bible wants us to, to take our time to really think through it. Um, And so today we begin shifting our perspective of the scripture, allowing it to define ourselves, to define our lives. And just know, today sets the stage. Today is like the real introduction, the real beginning. Um, And it's, to me, the most challenging one out of all the ones that we'll talk about. So just get ready, prepare your heart, your mind, because you're going to be like, wait a second. And that means we're on a good path. If it's causing you to think, that means it's, we're going all in. That's a good thing. So um, let me pray one more time as we dive into this. Lord, I pray that once again we might be led to Jesus through this study and through the scriptures and be given wisdom to live our lives in light of that relationship. And today, Lord, help us to allow ourselves to be challenged in this, to allow ourselves to begin to see this perspective, this paradigm a little bit more. Amen. Who wrote 
the Bible? This is the first question I want you to think out. We're on page one of that handout. Who wrote the Bible? Did God write it or did people write it? Kind of a trick question because the answer is yes, both. Um, but the way we kind of talk about it sometimes, or the way I've seen it talked about or heard others uh, kind of talk about it, um, is we don't see this co-authorship as much. Or we, don't, we acknowledge it, but we will give one side more credit than the other. Um, but God and people wrote the author. It's an equal thing. It's a, either, it's a, it's a both, not an either or an or. It's a... Yeah, both wrote it. And this was intentional on the part of God as he carried along his people and um, as people began to write down the words. But I want to dive into this today, starting with Second Timothy. Uh, this is a scripture we read last week. We'll read it again. But uh, this is one that we go to when we talk about the authorship of scripture. It says, You, Timothy, however, continue in the things that you've learned and become convinced of, knowing that from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, Scripture, the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. Um, those writings which are able to give you wisdom, that's the purpose, to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So we're looking specifically at verse 16 here. It says, all scripture, the whole of scripture. Again, when you see that word scripture, anytime in the Bible, it's referring to our Old Testament. Doesn't mean it's uh, not including the New Testament, um, but that came after this. Actually, that, this is part of the New Testament. Um, and I don't think Paul really knew he was writing the New Testament um, at that time. But it's, you know, specifically, he's talking about the Old Testament. That it's inspired by God. Some translations say God breathed. Um, breathed out by God is another translation. And the literal, you know, you, you break it down literally, it's God-spirited. God-spirited scripture. God-spirited scripture. Um, and so before we go any further, I just want you to think about what do you think that means? Like come up with the answer in your head and your heart. When it says God inspired, God breathed, or God spirited, what does that mean to you? And just think about it for a second. Come up with your answer and then put it aside. You know, we're talking about removing our assumptions, our con you know, conceived ideas, but put it aside. It doesn't mean get rid of it because you're probably right. Um, but what does it mean? I want to look at another uh, passage in light of this one. Second Peter 1. It says, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So let's follow this verse a little bit too. There, there's that word Scripture again. So again, we're talking about um, the Old Testament. But then it starts talking about how there's no prophecy, no part of Scripture that is the result of one's own interpretation or one's own perspective. Simply, people did not just write the Bible for the fun of it. It's kind of like how I, how I like to break that down. It's not just a human construct, but that within Scripture 
is this result or this encounter with some kind of authority, some kind of holiness, some kind of wisdom from God, and that the Spirit was at work the whole time. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Um, But to me, the question is how? How did God do this? If both God and people wrote the Bible, who gets the credit? How did it happen? Um, You know, what what does it mean that God moved them? Another translation says that God carried them. um, Or that God spirited, inspired, or breathed. See, I want to rule out from the very beginning that there's nowhere in the Bible where it presents the Bible as falling out of heaven. You know, our Bible is very different from a lot of other religions and their Bibles, their holy scriptures. You know, it it didn't drop down from heaven on golden tablets for, you know, that's not how our Bible came to be. It's very different. Um, Our holy book is different because God kept humans as an integral part, a a very um, important work in the creation, formation, and preservation of scripture. See, God had the Bible written in partnership with him. And I like what I have at the end, the second to last paragraph on that first page there. Um, it's kind of bolded there. It says, it is the idea that God's involvement in Scripture is like an invisible breath that brings life or the invisible wind that carries along things that otherwise wouldn't have been moved. This is the picture we get of God's Spirit being actively but invisibly involved in the creation, formation, and, and, and uh, preservation of scriptures. And it's the same picture that we get starting on page one of the Bible. You know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and his spirit hovered over the waters. That word spirit can also be used as, as wind or breath. You know, God has always been breathing us along, carrying us by his spirit. It's the same for the Bible. So again, how... I want to look at the how. And so we're going to move into page two of this handout and look at some of the instances where God and people partnered in this work of writing, creating, forming the Bible. And the first one we have here is Exodus 17. Um, And it's this passage where, uh, you know, the Israelites just came out of Egypt. They just crossed the Red Sea and they have come to uh, part of their wilderness, they're on their way to Mount Sinai, and they get attacked by the Amalekites, or however you say that. Um, and so Josh, I mean, Moses sends Joshua and the people out to fight. Moses goes up on a mountain, and this is the story where they win as long as Moses' hands are up, and they lose when his hands are down. And so that's kind of where this story is at. Verse 13 says, So Joshua overwhelmed uh, Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in 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 a book, in a scroll, as a memorial, and recite it to Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Sixty-seven chapters into the Bible is the first time we get, Hey, let's write the Bible. 67 chapters in, up to this point, and we'll talk more about this later, it's been told orally. It's been passed down, you know, by voice, by story, um, by song, by poem. And so this is the first place where we have write this book down 
um, which is really interesting. But really what I want to point out here is who, who wrote it? Uh, who, who's responsible for it? Again, the answer is both. But uh, who, who, wrote, who did which part? See, God told Moses what to write down and to write down what had just happened. And he also said why as a memorial to remember and to recite to Joshua. We'll dive into that more in a few weeks. But God's part here was saying, hey, write this down. Moses actually did the writing. According to the face value of Scripture here, this is, God didn't even specify you know, what to write down. He just said, write down this, what just happened, as memorial. You know, so that everybody knows this salvation story here. And so you have this partnership. The first instance that we see the Bible being written down, you have this partnership of God inspiring and Moses writing. And it's the same partnership as the story. It reflects the story. God's winning for Israel, but they're doing the fighting. It's a partnership. And that's kind of the picture that's being cast here. Um, And so you see Moses writing a narrative um, and out of devotion to the Lord, out of the Spirit's leading, out of obedience, uh, maybe all of that. But it shows you a brief picture of this partnership. I'm going to look at another one. Jeremiah 36. It says, In the fourth year of Jerohakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah the Lord, saying, Take a scroll. And I like how it actually has scroll written here. Every time you see book, remember, there were no books yet. It's talking about a scroll. And write on it all the words which I have spoken to you concerning Israel and concerning Judah and concerning the nations from the day I first spoke to you, from the days of Josiah, even to this day. Perhaps the house of Judah will hear all the calamity which I plan to bring on them in order that every man will turn from his evil way. Then I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. Then Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah, And Baruch wrote on the scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord which he had spoken to him. So this is an instance where God specifically says, write down everything I said. And this is chapter 36 of Jeremiah. Hopefully he had been writing this down for a while because I forget things pretty easily. But it's impressive to me, at least. But this is kind of a word for word. Okay, I need to write down the words that God said. There's kind of some instruction here. But even when you look at the book of Jeremiah, he includes his own prayers. He includes different narratives that God didn't technically say. So you still have a person involved in this partnership writing the things that are on his heart. um, That God has probably laid on his heart. Um, And it's kind of interesting that Jeremiah didn't even write it. He got somebody else to do it at the dictation of Jeremiah. But this is the partnership. Um, again, God didn't write the book. Instead, Jeremiah was the mouthpiece. And Jeremiah used somebody else as the hand in this picture. Um, and this is actually how most of the Bible is written, is God inspired the hearts of his faithful followers to write something down, of something that just happened, of something God said. But sometimes we also see some other things. Um, and, you know, Another example is Luke chapter 1. I don't have it up here. But, you know, Luke chapter 1, um, he, he says that, you know, I've, I've, I've set aside some time to write this all out, just as it was handed down from those who saw it. And it seemed 
uh, fitting for me to investigate it all, to you know, carefully write it out in consecu- consecutive order for you, Theophilus, so that you might exactly know the truth of the things that have been taught. There is no indicator that God said, Luke, you need to write this because this is going to be part of the Bible. No, he was just being faithful to God, faithful to those he, he was in community with, um, and he wanted to relay the gospel as best as he good, could. And honestly, I think that's the way most of the Bible is written. Uh, when we look at the biblical descriptions of the, the, all, all the, the books of the Bible and, and, and everything going on, you'll notice that you know, when it says that they're, they're writing, they're not in a trance. They're not being mind-controlled. It didn't just drop down from heaven. No, there's this partnership picture going on. You might say, well, what about the visions of Scripture? So I want to look at a couple of those. One of them is Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 2 says, um, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me, what God will speak to me, and how I may reply when I'm reproved. And the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on the tablets, that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet to be uh, is for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. And so Habakkuk, you know, he writes down a vision. But this is after he saw the vision. He wasn't in a trance writing as, no, he says, hey, I'm going to show you this vision. Write it down. You see the same with uh, Revelation. Look at Revelation. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the uh, tribulation and the kingdom and perseverance, which are in in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of the God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. and, And then it lists all the churches. Uh, Revelation's a great example of this because, man, I don't think God was like, hey, write this down. Like, John, hold on. I got to go get some paper. No, he saw what happened. And so much of Revelation is flooded with Old Testament imagery. So it kind of shows that John sat down afterward. And he, he wrote down some of the things that he saw. And he remembered how it tied to stories of the past. And he you know, wove it all together in such a masterful way to connect it. Like, it's just, it's, I think it's just crazy how much uh, imagery that he uh, includes in it. But he says, write in a book what you see. Um, and so, to me, the, the biggest thing to point out here is that God allows somebody to see something that couldn't otherwise be shown or seen without God's help. And then God says to write it down. He doesn't give them a word-for-word description, but he allows the author to flesh it out. Like, hey, write this vision down. Okay, which part? You got this. You got this. This is a partnership picture that we're getting. Um, and again, I think Revelation is such a good example because of all the Old Testament imagery. But even when you do see these occasions where a prophet is in this elevated consciousness uh, of visions or dreams or whatever the writing comes later um, in most instances if not all of them and so take these passages 
And we see here that the people wrote the Bible out of a humble and faithful, obedient spirit, living for God, um, talking, taking their work seriously. And, and God was taking his work seriously too, but he desired to work with his people. From page one of the Bible, he desires to work with his people in partnership, in ruling the world, in representing who he is. And the Bible is no different. Um, you know, that, that it's all inspired by him. It's carried with his authority, but it's all written by human hands, with human words, with human experiences, with human skill put into the pages. And these two aspects of authorship, the human and the divine authorship, are working in unity. And so this is kind of the first step of our paradigm, seeing and reading the Bible as a human and divine partnership. We're meant to look at the Bible and the authorship in this way. This is uh, called the drawing hands. Um, and it's a simple picture of how the human and divine work together and are unified. You know, one hand divine, the other hand human. One the Bible, the other the church working with and on one another um, the scriptures claim to be the product of a divine and human partnership. And this isn't saying that people invented God. No, 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 no. Specifically the Bible here, this partnership. The Bible was created you know, by a human hand. This divine work was written by a human hand, but this divine work was writing these people's hearts um, at the same time. Both are necessary. Neither alone are sufficient to explain the origins, origins and the nature of the biblical text. Um, this involvement doesn't diminish, you know, God's involvement doesn't diminish the human fingerprint here. Um, I think it's the opposite. Throughout the whole biblical story, you see God partnering with his people, getting involved in their lives, and actually raising them up to be uh, rescuers and saviors of God's people. You know, God's not trying to get rid or diminish or hide humanity's involvement in anything. Um, in other words, you know, he, he brings it into the light. Um, to be more human, the image of God. This is true of all spirit-empowered figures in the Bible. You take, you know, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David, the prophets, the apostles. Every time the spirit comes upon them, their human uh, skills are just increased. They run faster, they write better, they preach a better sermon, um, all human things. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's, it's not intended to uh, hide human involvement. It's kind of my point there. The same goes the other way. Just because humans are actively involved in the writing of the Bible doesn't mean God's fingerprint is any lessened. If anything, God's fingerprint in Scripture is highlighted all the more because it's the way he wants to do it. You know, a lot of people, especially outside of Christianity, would assume that if a God's going to give this holy work, he's not going to let anybody else take any credit. We have a lot, a lot of other religions that are like this, that their scriptures came solely from their uh, divine uh, being. But God designed it. He wanted it to come through a partnership of him working with his people. And in, in our culture today, this is an idea that's uh, lost. It's foreign. Um, over the last couple hundred years, there's this 
idea of trying to separate the human and divine, this idea that God will, uh, you know, he, he's taken the world, he's winded up like a clock, and it's running, and it's going. And every now and then, he'll, he'll, he'll intervene, just barely. And it's called a miracle. But that's not how the biblical authors saw the world. No, they saw that from the beginning until now, God, there's been this partnership. There's been this partnership and there's been this, this uh, collision between human and divine interacting, mixing all through his preferred means, his image of God. That is through his people, his image of God, his image bearers, where the human and divine connect, where the human and divine come into partnership. And that's how God moves. That's how God acts. You look at all the miracles of the Bible, there's always this human aspect to it. Apart from creation, there's always this human aspect involved. This human person being the, the rescuer of the remnant or the healer of the broken. There's the human aspect. I mean, just look at Jesus, 100% God, 100% human. Why would his scripture be any different? And, you know, sometimes it, it's scary because we don't want the Bible to have any errors. You know, we talk about the Bible, the inerrancy of Scripture. And, and sometimes it feels like it's harder to defend its inerrancy, it's, it's perfection in some sense, when you allow people to be a part of that because we're very messed up. But there's a lot of, and don't get me wrong here, there's a lot of errors in Scripture. And I'll show you what I mean when I say that here in just a second. Um, I'm not saying any of the words are not inspired or undivine or anything like that. But over time, we've messed up a few times. But it's because God's Spirit is actively involved in us that the Bible has been preserved. And it is inerrant. Um, so again, biblical authors don't s share the perspective of these two ideas separate. Um, they see them connected, a, a, a link that's found in humanity. Uh, a restored creation, the image of God. Even in the first few pages of the Bible, once again, we see God delegating humans to be his representative, his rule, um, and reflection. And we see that throughout the biblical story. It's humans that are where, are, that is the place where the human and divine, the, the earthly and the heavenly connect. And therefore, if God's primary way of working in the world is through his people, then God's primary way of bringing the Bible together is through this partnership. Um, his spirit-filled people, his image bearers, and that's the place where we experience the extraordinary is through the ordinary, um, a partnership. So, again, the, the reason I'm, I'm going so deep into that or repeating that over is because once we start to see the Bible as a human and divine partnership, we see that everything in there is super, super, super intentional. Not just because God wanted it that way, but because humanity put their heart, soul, and blood into it. And it's super, everything in there is, is there on purpose. And so I want to show you what I mean. Um, we're on page three of the handout. I want to start with the way that the Bible was put together. Um, you know, it, it, what's on its pages, the, the formation, the structure, and the design of it um, is kind of where we're starting. Because in seeing this, it magnifies all the more what is written down. Um, and to read the way that Jesus read the Bible is to recognize how, many, how much human fingerprints were involved in this. Um, so 
real quick, the, the Bible is a formation of, you know, a byproduct of 3,500 plus years of work. The Bible that you have today is a result of over 3,000 years of work. To have it in that translation in front of you and in your language is a byproduct of people and God working in partnership for thousands of years. Just think about that. This is, you know, we wouldn't have this without this partnership. You know, some some uh, religions say that their scripture can only be read in the one that the divine dropped down into their hands in that language. No, God, God's made this accessible for everyone. Um, and that's just crazy. If you backtrack, the Bible was written by 40 plus authors, 40 plus different people over the span of about 1600 years. Um, and they came from various geographical locations, different cultural settings. Uh, with different places in history. Some even spoke and wrote in different languages. And most of these authors never knew or met each other. Yet God put it all, had it all put together eventually. God had it all unified. Um, but it was because of their faithfulness and their, submit, uh, their, their humility and their, their submitting to God that this all happened, created this unified work. And uh, again, the Bible wasn't written in the book form. It was written in a scroll. It was written without uh, verses and chapters. And I kind of want to show you what that looks like real quick. You can look at this on uh, uh, digital Dead Sea Scrolls. This is uh, the scroll of Isaiah. And it starts, you know, you, know you, have, you open it on one end and you just start scrolling through. Um, they would unfold it and roll it out. But as you start to look through here you see that they would take pieces of leather and they would write out the scripture and run out of room so they would have to attach another piece of leather on right here in the seam and then they would keep writing and by jesus day it came to a point where one scribe would have the uh, first scroll the the maybe not the original, but the most original at that time, and they would have the fresh one, and they're copying it down. That's scribe A. And then scribe B would go looking through it. Ah, Carson messed up. Carson messed up. And you can see that there's these little uh, points where all of a sudden the writing looks a little bit different. He forgot a verse. I better write that in. Or this is more just like me. Let me see if I can find it here. Here's another example um, but here's where it really gets good. Oh, I ran out of room. Scribe A messed up. I need to just go down the side here. That's exactly what I do when I'm taking notes. Oh, now I just need to turn and go down this way. But this is this is how they would... Re- so this is what I meant when I say the Bible has its faults. It messed up. You know, we messed up at times. It doesn't mean the words. But... Um, and every now and then in prints of our Bibles, there'll be a mistake, and they, we go back and fix that out of our faithfulness. So that's kind of what I meant when I said that a second ago. But this is, you know, how Jesus knew the Bible back in the day is through these scrolls, these scrolls that had been copied down from generation to generation. And there's this big process of doing it. And so they would catch mistakes that were made because it would go through this process. But... Um, it wasn't until about a few hundred years before Jesus that the whole Old Testament was collected at this point. There were 24 scrolls equaling the 39 books of our Old Testament. But 
it's kind of crazy because even half the Bible wasn't even formed yet, written yet, or connected to one another yet j- until just a couple hundred years before Jesus. Um, but think about it, just in short. We'll come back to this idea a little bit more later. Over the course of 3,500 years plus, how much it has taken God's people to not only write the Bible, but to form it, to connect it, to get it right to the point to where we have it today. In our language, in a translation that just kind of makes a little bit more sense, in a book form so that everybody can have it on our phones, we can access thousands of languages and translations in an instant. That's the extent that God and his people in this partnership have put into the Bible over the last 3,500 years. But what did the Bible look like in his day? That was, that was kind of the, how, that, that was the scroll part of it. The other part is the Tanakh. Um, when, and you can see in your uh, handout there, um, in Jesus' day, the Old Testament, how they saw the Bible, how they ordered it, was a little bit different than the way we have it today. You can see on the left side the order of the Tanakh. That means Torah, Nevi'im, and Kedavim. The Torah, the first five books of Moses, the prophets, and the writings. And then on the right side of that little graph there is the way we have our Old Testament um, organized. And if you kind of work your way down, you can see some highlights of, oh, the books were in different spots than we have them. Chronicles actually came at the very end of the Hebrew Bible when it's in the middle of ours. Ruth is in that last section, not after Judges and before Samuel. And so the, the, the point of it, I mean, and here's, here's some evidence to that. Look at what Jesus says in Luke 24. These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and the Psalms, Psalms was the biggest portion of the writings, so it was kind of shorthand for the writings. Must be fulfilled. And then here's another one. Um, you know, uh, Jesus is talking to some Pharisees, and this is just fascinating to me. He, he says, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of the Lord. What? The first mention of blood, Abel, we know that's in Genesis 4. So that's kind of the beginning but this other blood, the blood of Zechariah, comes in uh, Chronicles 24, verses 20 through 22. That would have been the end of the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, the last book. So he's saying everything in between, this end and this end. This was how they saw the order of their Old Testament. Here's kind of an example I have for you. Um, I just got this, and I'm really excited about it. But the, this is the five books of Moses, the first one here. Then you have the prophets and the writings. This is how they divided the sections of the Old Testament. And we'll see more of why as we go. But the point is, that's how Jesus saw the Bible. And maybe in order to see it like Jesus, in order to read it that way, maybe we should visit that way as well and see what that opens our eyes to. Um, if we read it in this way, maybe we'll catch some things that we don't quite catch when we read it in our way. And I want to make it very clear, I don't think our way is just wrong, and we just need to rip it up and reorganize it. 
No, because then that's a whole lot harder than it sounds because it takes a lot of glue and professional to put it back together. But no, there's a lot of things that we catch, like, you know, to have judges and then Ruth right next to it when it says in the days of the judges, oh, that just makes sense. And then when it ends with the genealogy that leads to David in this next book, half of it is about David or most of it's about David, it just makes sense. Um, But there's some things that you'll catch when you all of a sudden you see Ruth, it comes after Proverbs. But you only see that when you read it in this way. See, there's so much intentionality in Scripture, even in the way they ordered it, that there's something to gain when we do that. Um, I want to quickly look at the next page. Um, The next page, it has Psalm 67, and here's just a short, short, short uh, picture of the intentionality of the Bible, from the structure of all the sections of the Hebrew Bible down to just chapters of stuff. You can see how in Psalm 67, the first stanza and the last stanza, they go together. And then the next two, or the next one and the second to last, it goes together. And it all leads to something and leads out to where you pick up on a message as you read it in order. But if you read it by connecting these words and connecting these ideas, it brings you into a deeper meaning and a deeper message of what the author is trying to show you. And the whole Bible is like this. We don't have time to just kind of go through the whole thing, so it's there for you to look at. But on the next page, you have John. John 1 is a masterful literary art that wants the reader to connect what he is writing to the whole storyline of the Bible and all of its promises. This is what we're going to start calling hyperlinks. He uses this idea of a hyperlink. If you're old school, it's called cross-references. But um, in modern day with computers, you hit a hyperlink and it takes you to a different website, to a different place. Bible authors are doing this all the time. In John 1, he starts with in the beginning and is trying to get you to jump back to Genesis 1, to the creation, to the formation of the world, to the intentionality God had between him and his people. And then he starts talking about uh, uh, the glory of God, you know, the glory of the tabernacle, the glory found in the tent of meeting. It's all found in Jesus and, and so much more. There's so many hyperlinks. Once again, we don't have time to go through all of that, but it's there if you want to look at it. It's kind of like a teaser of what's to come. The next one on page 7 is Jonah. Um, and it, there's a pattern to the book that causes you to just think about the meaning um, when you're reading it. You start in verse 1, um, and in and, and verse 1 and 2, it says that Nineveh needs help. Okay, there's plot conflict number one. Nineveh needs help. Okay, verse 3, we found out that God's chosen prophet runs away from the calling. Okay, there's the second problem. We have two problems. Nineveh needs help, and Jonah needs help. Well, in chapter 2, God brings Jonah back on track. Okay, well, that plot's been resolved. And so we keep reading, and we keep you know, looking, and we know the leftover problem is that Nineveh needs help. And in chapter 3, it shows Jonah going, he preaches, and Nineveh turns to God. Yay, all the problems have been resolved. And this is an example of some of the limiting things that we do in the Bible because a lot of children's books, or the way we teach the story of Jonah, it stops there. But if you t- there's still another chapter. See, it'd be a great story if it stops there, but according to chapter 1, one of those plot conflicts was never resolved, and that's the point of the book. Jonah, God's own prophet, 
finally tells us why he ran away, he says to God that you're too good, that you're too compassionate and loving. He's quoting Exodus 34, 6. And he's saying, God, you're too good. That's why I ran away, because I knew you would forgive. And the, the point of Jonah isn't that, hey, we need to go preach the message to nations. That's a great lesson and a true one. But sometimes we get in the way of that. And if we don't read the story as a whole, and if we don't see the intentionality in some of these, right, we're going to miss some things. Or we might just leave it out because we don't know what to do with it. He chooses to use his people. Even when we get in the way, God desires this partnership even when we run from it. And that's the setting of the Bible. So on page 7, we get to the question, so what? Down at the bottom there. This is just the beginning of how Jesus saw the Bible and what the Bible has for us when we choose to read it that way. Again, we couldn't go over everything, but there's some things for you to look at over the course of this next week. But once you see the invisible work of the Spirit and the intentionality that people put into the Bible because of their faithfulness to God and God's Spirit, you'll know that everything in the Bible is there on purpose and meant to guide you into a deeper understanding and life change with Jesus. Jesus saw this stuff. Jesus saw all the human fingerprints and he accepted it. He called it his scriptures. He saw that he knew it was spirit driven and spirit preserved, but he also knew that God chose messy people to do the work just like he has done throughout history for everything. So how does seeing the Bible's authorship as a human and divine partnership affect us? We're on page 8 now, the last page there. It allows us to see in greater detail the Bible as a masterful literary work of art that it is, and, and how we view the Bible is going to affect how we read it, how we interpret it, and how we apply it. It also allows us to consider the greater context of a story, how it fits into that time and culture, but also how it fits into the whole of the Bible, the the context, the setting, its placement, and its surrounding themes. And it really just sets up all the more, uh, sets us up all the more to catch the next six lessons that we're going to be talking about. When we see the Bible in this way, okay, when you start to see it as unified, as messianic literature, as communal literature, as uh, ancient literature, as meditation literature, and as wisdom literature, when we understand that the Bible is a human and divine partnership, it sets us up for the next six to be able to grasp and, and more clearly just run with these next six. But it also affects our daily living because we too are a human and divine partnership in Jesus. And that's where I want to end tonight is that you and I, we are a human and divine partnership, just like Scripture, just like Jesus, 100% God, 100% man. We uh, are, are this human and divine partnership too. See, Jesus and the apostles, they embraced this idea. They got it. And they knew that that's how God originally and has since then wanted to carry out his will and his way is through his people in this partnership. And God... Um, his blessing has been for us to be his rulers and representatives. But we mess that up, and Jesus restores us back into that partnership. 
this view of Scripture can actually help us understand more of the human and divine component of Jesus, that those two worked hand in hand together without conflict, without contradiction. There was this partnership. And so I want to look at one more verse before we close, and then we'll have a little bit of time to talk, um, and I'm always up for talking later as well. But though the Bible is a result of, of human and divine partnership, so are we. And so John 15 26 through 27 says, When the Helper comes, when the Spirit comes, who I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. The Spirit will testify about Jesus. And you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. Jesus never intended, God never intended for him to do the work and for us just to watch. He always wanted us to be a part of showing everybody who he is, who Jesus is. And we see this the same in Scripture. God never intended the only part of Scripture that he wrote, Moses broke. It was the Ten Commandments, and Moses messed that up. But God never intended to write the whole thing out for us. He wanted this partnership. He wanted us to be able to look Somebody like me wrote the next part of the Bible, or he wrote the Bible. Maybe I could write the next part. Don't get carried away. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but, uh, I mean, Paul didn't know he was writing the next part, so maybe, I don't know. No, that's not really how it works. But I want to close with this quote. It's on that last page um, somewhere. Yeah, it's kind of obvious near, near, near the bottom. It says, without God, we cannot. But without us, he will not. Again, it's just this picture that God's deep and desperate desire, maybe not desperate, but his deep desire is to partner with us. That the Bible is this unique place where God speaks to his people, pointing us to the story of Jesus. And it pushes us into an ongoing, ongoing story of him ruling with us in life. Engaging the Bible in this way not only allows us to find greater meaning in its pages, but it magnifies our role in our relationship with God as partners to his testimony in light of the humanity and divinity of Christ. So that's where I end. Is when we look at the Bible um, in this way, it shows how we ought to be living in this way. And so I'm going to pray and then remind you of the practice and uh, we'll help you pick it up here in a second. And then uh, we have just a couple moments to talk, and then we'll head over to the pie auction. So, Lord, I pray whatever I just said makes sense, first off. (laughs) Um, But I also pray that, again, we might be led to Jesus through this study and through the scriptures, and that we might begin to see and walk in all, all the more in this partnership that you've established with us, to be given the wisdom to live our lives in light of this partnership this human and divine partnership. God, I just thank you. I praise you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.